0: All right. The book of Revelation. You know, it's kind of ironic. This book is called Revelation. It's supposed to be revealing something, but so many people uh, have been confused by it. it uh, they read it and they don't. It doesn't lead to a revelation. It's, uh, it's, it's an obfuscation. Um, I don't think we should call the book that, though. I don't think we should call it that name, but it does say something, you know, if, uh, if we're reading the book of Revelation and it's not revealing something to us, maybe we're not reading it right. And there's been so much that's written about the book of Revelation. There's been so much that's been done. Uh, you know, for example, the Puritans wrote more commentary on the book of Revelation than any other book in the Bible, far more than any other book. Um, D.A. Carson commenting on this said, you know, most of it, most of what's been written has been eminently forgettable and mercifully forgotten. (laughs) Eminently forgettable and mercifully forgotten. I like that. But a whole lot of scholarly work has not been done on the book of Revelation. uh, Not in comparison with what's been done, say, on the Gospels in the New Testament or the letters of Paul. Uh, But more recently, that's begun to change and people have been doing scholarly work, helpful work, on the book of Revelation. And in fact, I want to credit this morning a particular scholar who's been just uh, instrumental for me. And we're indebted to him for the content this morning. His name is Richard Baucom. And he is a New Testament professor at the University of St. Andrews in, in Scotland. And he has done some excellent work. He's a a New Testament scholar. He's done wonderful work on the Gospels. And he studied the book of Revelation for 20 years. And then he published a big book in 1993. But I would recommend, he's also published a little book in that same year called The Theology of the Book of Revelation. And if if you're somebody who likes to read and you say, I want something that's accessible and not too long, just give me a grasp of what the book of Revelation is about, I would recommend this book. Again, the theology of the book of Revelation, is about 150 pages. It's, you know, scholarly, it's academic, but it is, it is I think, quite accessible. And again, I'm indebted to him uh, for his good work and what he's done. So what I want to do this morning is read for you. You might have noticed in the bulletin there's kind of a long scripture reading, and what I have done is taken selections from the book of Revelation chapter 1 verse 1 and then selections from chapter 5 through chapter 11 because John is actually telling us a story about how this book came about and I want us to get that story. Um, We're going to start in chapter 1 verse 1. Always pay attention to chapter 1 verse 1 if you're studying a Bible book can avoid a lot of confusion if you pay attention to chapter 1, verse 1. And that's certainly true in the book of Revelation. And what you'll notice, and I'm going to tell you this before we read it, if you look at, at, the, at chapter 1, book, verse 1 of the book of Revelation, what you'll notice is that there's a chain of revealing. There's a chain of revelation. It starts with the one on the throne, one who was and is and is to come, who then gives it to, to Christ, who then gives it to a mighty angel, who then turns and gives it to the Apostle John, or the writer of this, this book, John. And then John gives it to his audience, so to us. And so you've got this chain happening that John describes in the first verse, and then he goes on to explain it. And this mighty angel it's helpful because there you know, are a lot of angels that show up in the book of Revelation, but he shows up again in chapter 5, first few verses, and also, again, he's there in chapter 10 and 11 for the great reveal of the book. So what we're going to do is try to follow that, that story that John is giving us. Because he's telling us the story of how the book came about right from the first verse. And then what happens in chapter 1, verse 1 is explained in the rest of the book. Okay, So please stand if you're able. Let's read these selections from the book of Revelation. And again, I'm going to start in verse chapter 1, verse 1. And then I'm going to, you know, for the sake of time, I'm going to even kind of abbreviate some of these. So these are selections. I'm not leaving stuff out because I'm trying to leave stuff out. I'm trying to give us just the overall narrative. And so I'll try to guide us through so you know. If you want to follow, I encourage you to follow along in the bulletin. Um, I'll, I'll let you know what verses I'm reading. So again, Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And now, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And at that point the passage goes on everybody breaks out into praise worthy is the lamb who is slain. And then chapter 6 in verse 1 at the bottom. Now I watched the lamb and opened one of the seven I watched, watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice like thunder come And verse 8, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. And then to verse 12, And when he opened the sixth seal, as chapter 6, he's opening these seals, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And then moving on to chapter 8. Let's begin in verse 7. Now they're blowing the trumpets that have started when the seventh seal was was opened. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Now let's move across to chapter 9. And let's begin there in, in verse 20 with the response... these things the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts until we get to verse 10 until we get to chapter 10 And then chapter 10, let's start in verse 5. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, and who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Now to chapter 11, and we'll begin in verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And then verse 7. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb." and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Let's go to verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Glory Lord God Almighty, who is and was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And finally, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of the covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please make yourself comfortable. Okay, do you feel like it's been revealed? <laughs> it's all clear? All right, we're going to tell this story, and I think you can see what John is revealing to us because it is a big reveal. And to get into this, we're going we're to start in chapter 5. We're going to go through these um, chapters and I, I'm going to get us into this by just asking you a simple question about chapter 5, what we read in chapter 5. And it is this. Why is John crying? Why does he start weeping? Do you notice this? In, in verses 3 through 4, there's this scroll that's in the hand of the one on the throne, and it has these seven seals Really sealed up, nobody can open it nobody's found worthy and John you notice in verse three four get and th- four he gets upset about it, really upset in fact, the translations say this differently you know ours says he he you know uh, wept loudly, NIV says he cried and cried they're trying to bring out the intensity of the Greek because' it's, it's like he, he was just broke down he, he was really upset and crying because these 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 seals on the scroll couldn't be broken right now ask yourself why was he crying that these seals could not be broken because when you see them being broken right all sorts of trouble that comes right that's when all the pestilences come and a fourth of the earth and then a third of the earth and all these plagues they all come out on us so why is it that john would be crying and so upset that they're not getting broken It doesn't make any sense, right? This is an important point if you're interpreting the book of Revelation, and is this that what happens as the seals are being broken is not what's on the scroll, it's not the content of the scroll. Okay? John is crying about what's on the scroll, but what happens when the seals are being broken isn't what's in the scroll. Okay, and that makes sense, right? If you have a scroll, if you, just this picture, and you have seven seals on it, and you break one of the seals, can you read what's in the scroll? No, it's still sealed, right? So all these things that are happening are not what the, what's in the scroll. That's not the content of the scroll. They may, they're accompanying the scroll. They're preparing for the re- revelation of what's in the scroll, but they're not the scroll. That's important. So then what is John John crying about? He's crying about the content of the scroll. Well, what is in the scroll? We don't find out what's in the scroll until chapter 10 and chapter 11 of the book. And what does it turn out to be when we get there? Well, I'll tell you. It's, It's actually what all of the Bible is about. The content of the scroll is what the whole Bible is about. What's the whole Bible about? I'll tell you in a nutshell. It's the kingdom of God coming to earth. It's the kingdom of heaven being brought down to earth. That's what the Bible's about. From the very beginning, starting with Adam and Eve, the vice regents, those, those ones he created as under stewards to create and extend his dominion over the, all the earth. It was about the kingdom, God building his kingdom on earth. Well, that didn't work. To the long history of Israel, right in that long, long history where God gathered a, a people and, and gave them a land and gave them a law and finally He gave them a king, brought all those things together so there could be a great kingdom of Israel. Why? It's the kingdom of God coming to earth. He's trying to build his kingdom and extend it to all the nations. But that didn't work. To Jesus, when Jesus comes and he starts preaching, what does he say? remember? What does Jesus say when he starts preaching? The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is coming. Here it is. The kingdom of God is now coming. From beginning to end, you can trace it through. If you wanted to sum up everything that the Bible says in one phrase, it would be this. The coming of the kingdom of God to earth. The coming of the kingdom of heaven to earth. That's what the Bible is about, and that is what is the scroll that's the secret of what of how to bring this about so that the kingdom comes to earth and it's a long story because it's so hard to do because in order to do it you have to conquer evil you have to overcome evil key key word in the book of revelation keeps coming up overcome overcome or conquer you could translate it two different ways to overcome evil that's what you have to do this is what John is looking at. You realize that this chapter comes right after chapter 4. In chapter 4, John went through this trapdoor into heaven, and he saw the kingdom. He saw what it was like. He saw the glory when the one on the throne rules. Because what, what did he see? He saw the beauty of what happens when God is really on the throne. And he took his breath away. We saw, Right? He peered into the center of the emerald and he saw this is the kingdom. And then he remembered what's happening on earth and he saw the contrast between what he's seeing in the heavens and what he's seeing on earth and the great chasm that separates the two. And he's, he's saying to himself, How could this, how could it possibly be that what's with the glory and the beauty of what I'm seeing here in heaven, be brought down to earth? How can the kingdom come to Earth? How can it be done? And it, it seems like it can't be done. It's sealed up with seven seals. You know, remember in the book of Revelation, numbers are not numbers. Seven isn't seven. It means the fullness. it means completely. It means this is completely sealed. This scroll, the secret of how the kingdom of heaven comes to Earth. It's completely sealed up. It's too hard. Nobody is found worthy. Nobody can do this. Nobody can take what's up there and bring it down here. It can't be done. That's why he's crying. That is why he is weeping. Because he sees the contrast of what it should be, what it could be, and the way it is. And it just can't, it can't be bridged. The chasm can't be crossed. You know, I had an experience not too long ago where something happened and i was i was in a perspective uh, standing there seeing what was going on and I, I didn't even think it in my mind it just came out of me it was like it, it, the, the words came out of my guts and what came out of my mouth was this is not the way it should be you know i was watching something going on and unfolding and i just it was visceral i was like this is not the way it should be." let me ask you something let me Raise your hand if you've ever had that feeling. If you've ever looked at something and it just, you just said to yourself, this is not the way it should be. Raise it up high if you've seen that. Well, what do you know? I'm not alone. That is the feeling you need to bring to the book of Revelation in order to interpret it because that is what John is experiencing. He is looking at the difference and he is hearing these words nobody is worthy to open this scroll. No way. Can we bring the beauty of what's in heaven down to earth? Then you'll understand what John is feeling. Seven seals. Man, completely wept. Completely sealed. But wait, says the elder, right? Wait, John, verse 5. Weep no more. Weep no more because there is one who's been found who's worthy to break these seals. There is one who can do it. And the elder tells him who it is. Who is worthy? Well, it's the one who overcomes. It's the one who conquers. The one who can actually conquer evil. Okay? To bring that paradise down to earth. To overcome evil, to conquer evil. And who is it? Verse 5, he says, the elder tells him, it's the Lion of Judah. The lion of Judah has come. Now that makes sense to us, right? If you need to conquer evil, how are you going to deal with it? You need to smash it to smithereens. You need a lion. You need some kind of military might or something. You need some power to come in and just blow evil away, Blith- smash it to blitherines. I'm sorry, smithereens. Whatever it is to get rid of evil, right? You need that might of the of a lion. But here's the strange thing. He hears that it's a lion, but when John looks in verse 6, what does he see? It's a lamb. He hears it's a lion, but when he looks, it's a lamb. And not only is it a lamb, but it's a lamb that has been slain. Well, what what kind of overcoming is this? Right? This is the one that's worthy to open the plan. And what makes him worthy? Passage tells us in verse 9. It's his being slain makes him worthy to crack these seals it's his being being slain verse 9 because you are a slain not by being a a lion but by being a lamb how is this overcoming how is this going to to be why does this make him worthy it's a new song you see that in verse 9 of chapter 5 it's a new song that they're singing a new way of conquering This is key to what John is going to reveal to us about history. It's a foreshadowing of the story to come. And so the story plays out in chapters 6 through 9. Okay, and what do we see happening? Again, the seals are broken. the, The lamb starts breaking the seals. And what happens are all of these trials, all of these terrible tribulations that go on. Right, and it's awful the things that happen. In the sky, the stuff falls from the sky, and there's wild beasts and all sorts of difficulties that are going on. And again, this isn't what's in the scroll. This is just the preparation for understanding the scroll. And that's why the, the what happens when the seals are broken are all different. Sometimes there are judgments, really, from God, coming from God. Other times there are the saints just crying out for vindication. Different things happening when the seals are broken. But what we see happening in these trials are the the righteous retribution for evil on the earth, the stamping out of evil. But another thing that we see is as this is happening, people don't repent. What we're seeing is the inadequacy of these judgments to bring people to repentance So it's stamping out evil. It's saying, yeah, it's giving right retribution for evil, but it isn't accomplishing the kingdom on earth because people aren't repenting. You know, what are they doing? Chapter 6, verse 15. They're hiding in rocks. They're like, just hide. from I'd rather have the mountains fall on me than face the one from whose these judgments are coming. So people won't face the just retribution and what it means. They might even recognize that it's God's wrath. You know that, experience, that expression, there are no atheists in foxholes, right? That's true. There are no atheists in foxholes. But once they get out of the foxhole, <laughs> then what happens? I saw this graphically after 9-11. You know, we just finished celebrating the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, didn't we, right? 20-year anniversary of when the towers went down in New York, and I saw what happened after that. I was a pastor, I became a pastor after 9-11 in Greenwich Village in New York City, and I saw what happened. And it was extraordinary, friends, because what happened at that time, and this is well known, and you could, you could see it if you were there, a whole bunch of people started flooding into churches. The churches swelled after 9-11 for a couple of years. People that you would never expect to go to, to church, never expect to darken the doors of a church, started showing up at church. And the churches were full to the brim in New York City, kind of one of the most secular places that you can find. And that went on for two years. In fact, it, it spawned a national movement of church planting in New York City. Before 9-11, there were a few evangelical churches being planted, you know, but not, nothing big. After 9-11, everybody was planting a church in New York City. If you had a church, if you were denominations, you were planting a church in New York City because there were so many people going to church for about two years, and then it flowed right back out. People flowed back out of the churches. And do you know what was going on there? Just what John is describing here when he says, you know, they'd rather have the rocks fall on them than face the one from whom these, these troubles are coming. And so the, so the judgments go on. Chapter 8, opening of the seventh seal, prolonged by the five, five trumpets. And now we see the things that are happening, the judgments that are coming, righteous judgments, are afflicting a third of the world. And it's increasing. You notice in chapter 6, like verse 8, it's, it's affecting a quarter of the world. By chapter 8, verse 7, it's affecting a third of the world. So the judgments are increasing but it's, and it, justice is being met, but it's still not happening. It's still not bringing the kingdom down to earth. That's the way it's going. It's sort of like, you know, when you have a teenager and teenager decides, I am just dead set on disobeying, right? I'm not, I'm not looking at you. Don't. <laughs> no. You have, a... You, have, you know what I notice in these passages is that it keeps bringing up, um, well, I'll just say, it's like when you have a teenager and, and you say, okay, you've done this wrong. I got to take away this privilege. You, gotta, you, you lose your phone. But then you, a person keeps doing wrong. You say, Oh, I have to take away that group meeting that you have. This is being with your friends. Keeps doing wrong. You say, I got to take away. What do you do as a parent? You say, oh, I've got to take away more privileges. You know, I've got to you, show you that you are on the road to destruction. So I got to take away more and more from you of your privileges. And you know what? What we're seeing here in the Revelation, it's not working. Like the more that God is taking away and the more judgment that comes, the people are not repenting. These are not bringing the kingdom down to earth. And there's a lot of mercy in here, right? There's a lot of mercy. There's a lot of God holding things back, like not doing what he could do. You see this like uh, in the seven thunders. Do you know about the seven thunders? It goes by pretty quick if you're reading the book. You know about the seven uh, seals, right? And you know about the seven trumpets. Later there are the seven bulls, but you know there are the seven thunders. At one point, God says, okay, at this point, I'm gonna have to bring out the seven thunders. And so John gets all ready to write, okay, seven thunders. Okay, ready, and then God says, he changes his mind. He says, ah, forget it. I don't wanna do that. <laughs> That's too much. So he'll hold back the seven thunders. And John's like, okay, (laughs) at least we're not getting the seven thunders. Just recompense, just warning, just turn to him. Doesn't happen, doesn't happen. And that brings us to chapter 10. After the final, the seventh seal is open in the midst of the seventh trumpet, it says what? The mystery of the kingdom is revealed. And so we see in verse 1, if you're looking at at the passage here, verse 1, verse 5, finally, that mighty angel, that guy from from chapter 1, verse 1, that mighty angel is given permission to give John the scroll. John can get the scroll from the angel. And John has been waiting for this since chapter 5, right? And he has the voice in chapter 8, in chapter uh, 10, verse 8. He says, the voice from chapter 1 says, go up to the mighty angel and get the scroll. You can get it now. It's open. The secret of how the kingdom will come to earth. It's open. And so John marches up to the angel, right? You see it here, and he says, give it to me. John is ready. He's like, give it to me. And what does the angel tell him? Angel tells him, I'm going to give it to you, John, and you have to eat it. You have to eat this scroll. You know, let's put on our apocalyptic glasses here. What is he saying? John, you have got to digest this message. You have got to let this message get into you. You've got to let it sink down into your gizzards because this is tough. You can eat it, and it's going to be sweet to your mouth. Same thing happened to Ezekiel. Same thing happened to Jeremiah. Again, it's bringing back all the things from the Bible together again. They had to eat the scroll. They had to eat the word of God. And it's sweet to them. It's sweet to say, okay, I can see it. I can see what, what the plan is. I can see what God is revealing here. But when it gets down to the stomach, it is bitter. That's the difference with John's scroll. When he eats his, when he eats his scroll, it gives him a stomach ache. Why? Because of what the scroll says. Because of the way the kingdom is going to come to earth. There's a bitterness. What is it? Well, it's explained in chapter 11. So lastly, looking at chapter 11 with us. Here come the two witnesses, okay? Uh, We're kind of given a hint about what they are in the first few verses, but then chapter 11, verses 3 through 4, the two witnesses show up, and they make all the difference. They make all difference in what happens. What are the two witnesses? Who are the two witnesses? Well, you know, there's a lot of exegetical points, and if you want to come to this forum, we can talk about it some more, but I, I can tell you just pretty simply, they're called the lampstands, right? And what are the lampstands in the book of Revelation? We, we hopped over them, chapter 2 and 3, because uh, we'll, we'll go back there, but we didn't, we didn't present them here, but... What are the, what the lampstands? What's that? That's right, the churches. This is the witness of the faithful church. Why, too? Because John, again, is bringing all things from the Bible together, and he's bringing in the law. That is what the law says, by the mouth of two witnesses, let every word be established. So this is the word confirmed. This is the faithful witness of the church. And they come forth, and they give their witness. So most commentators today, thankfully, recognize this as a symbol of the witnessing faithful church. And they're very powerful. They can live life victoriously, the passage tells us. But in the end, do you see what happens in verse 7? They're still killed by the beast. The beast still kills the church. Well, how is this overcoming? (laughs) How is this conquering? This is the secret. This is the secret of the scroll. You notice that people rejoice over them. In verse 10, they're rejoicing over their demise, you know, and they stamp out the church in an area. They say, now we can get back to doing what we wanted to do Not this problem, you know, the Christian church. But what happens? The people see the way they suffer. The people see their sackcloth. They see how they suffer. They see how they die. And they see how, nonetheless, the church is revived. The church is brought back. And now, first time in the book of Revelation, verse 13, now the people give glory to God. Now it comes out. And there are still woes that are coming. John says there are, still, there are two more. You've experienced two. There's another one to come. But these two witnesses make all the difference because people witness their suffering, because they're faithful and they suffer and the people see what happens, how these people are living life. People start turning to God. And so verse 15, the seventh trumpet, it comes out. What does it say? Quote, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Friends, this is how the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. So that's why everyone then in the chapter breaks out into worship. This is the great reveal. Because this is how it worked the first time. This is how the lamb became the one worthy to open the seals because Through the Lamb's suffering and his death, and the people witnessing that, that converted basically all of Israel. That converted the land of Israel. And the ripples from that spread out so that most of the Roman Empire was converted to Christianity from that first inauguration. And now John is looking at the world and saying, well, you know, it's the same thing. The followers of the Lamb are going to do the same thing. This is the big reveal. The kingdom comes to the earth by the suffering of the saints. That's how it's going to happen. And that's why it's bitter in his tummy. As he inaugurated the kingdom, so his followers are going to usher in the kingdom. And because that happens, we end up in verse 19 of chapter 11. It's like the temple is opened temple of God is open. Again, everything in the Bible brought back, and the Ark of the Covenant is there to be seen. That's the message. So friends, the message of the book for John's readers and for us is that we suffer as part of the kingdom coming. That is what brings the kingdom. And so if you have an interpretation of the book of Revelation that somehow has us the church raptured away from tribulation. I'm, it's, it's not here. It's not here. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the message that John is bringing. Rather, the word from the throne is, take up your cross and follow me. It's, it's tough. It's a bitter word. Take up your cross and follow me. Because that's how I'm going to bring in the kingdom. That's how evil is finally going to be overcome. That's the word. And when he says, take up your cross, he's not talking about, you know, giving up chocolate for Lent. He's talking about a cross. Yeah, this is why it was bitter in his stomach. He's talking about actual suffering. Because, according to John here, you're going to get trouble from two places, two directions. One is the righteous judgments of God coming and unfolding in the world. Those things are going to happen and we're going to experience them too as part of living in a world where there's evil. Those righteous recompenses are coming. And we, the, 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 the job of the church is to say, look, this is what these are. You know, people Today, you can see this played out. Um, I could give you many examples. In, in In the 1990s, people started doing studies on cohabitation. Because this was a social trend, things were starting to change. People weren't getting married, now they were living together. And so sociologists started doing studies, and they found from the 1990s, it was very clear, that actually cohabitation destroys people. It destroys people. It leaves people with less personal satisfaction. It leaves people far less likely to have quality marriages later on. It increases domestic violence. You know, you can read these uh, statistics. It's well documented. And it, it actually increases child abuse. Child abuse is far more likely to happen in a cohabitating home than in a home that's based on marriage. And so this came out in the 1990s. Very consistent results. Did the culture s- turn to this and say, "Ah, gee, maybe we should do things differently. Maybe we're going in the wrong direction here." Nope. Instead, from 1990 to 2007, cohabitation doubled in the United States, and that up to six million households. And then it, it kept going from there. From 2007, just kept increasing, and the studies have been consistent. And consistently ignored. So do people, do people respond to God's judgments? No, they're responding just as they do in the book of Revelation. The repercussions of what they do. But when the church is there, and the church brings a faithful witness, and people see how the church goes through suffering, and how God revives the church, that makes all the difference. That brings people. That's how it always happens. You know, that's why the church in the third world is spreading like wildfire. And the church in this country is on the wane. Why? Because Christians in those places, they know how to suffer. They know how. And we don't. You know what our biggest problem is? You know what our biggest problem is? It's our affluence is that we are part of an affluent culture. And so we don't know what suffering is. You, don't, you know, the, the hallmark of an affluent culture is that suffering shocks you. It's like you can't believe that you can possibly suffer. That's what affluence is. You know, we're like uh, the, in the Hunger Games, you know, the capital city. Like uh, people in the middle there, the, the elite in the capital city. We're just concerned with their latest fashion and we go into bizarre lifestyles. That's us. And the church is not unaffected by this. But I'll tell you, we we you we can't even realize how the church is spreading in these places like in these third world places in Asia and Malaysia and these places. You have no idea how the church is spreading because it's so alien to our experience. But they are. All right. So we can live differently. We can live differently, and when we live differently, friends, it brings in the kingdom. So how do we do that? How do we learn to be the two witnesses? Well, we can take steps towards it, and so we're doing our fast today. Today we're going to start 6, 6 p.m., and we're going to fast for 24 hours. We're going to go without food for 24 hours, and we, we welcome you to join us in that. Something that we're doing, and what is that? That's humbling ourselves before God. And it's, it's, um, it's actually a small step for us. I know some people in this church fast a lot, so you, you know how to do this. You know, it seems like this women's group that's led by Stephanie Guest, it seems like they're fasting all the time. <laughs> like they're, they're always fasting for something. But the rest of us, it's kind of difficult. It's kind of hard on the body. But actually, starting at 6 o'clock and going to 6, much easier. A day fast instead of starting in the morning. So we're starting at 6 o'clock. We welcome you to come and join us for breaking our fast. We're going to break fast tomorrow together at 6 p.m. here. Welcome you to come and join us. What are we doing there? We're giving an antidote. This is the perfect antidote to our affluent life. This kind of voluntary depriving. It helps to show us what it is to suffer, even in a little way. So we can turn to the Lamb on the throne, be brought into union with Christ. That's what chapter 11 is about, is our being brought into union with Christ's story. And this is what does it. That's just one of the things that we're doing. We welcome you to join us in that today. It's a small step that we're taking. You know, I was talking with a mother last week about some of these things. And she was looking at what's happening in the country and what's coming and the difficulty that it's going to cause for Christians in this country. And she was like, you know, if it were just me, I could suffer. I could go through that. But she's thinking about her little children. And she says, when I'm thinking about my little children, how do I protect them? And she just burst into tears. She just couldn't, stop. She couldn't help but cry. She's thinking about her children and, and bearing with what's coming. Listen. The best thing you can do for your children, the best thing you can do is to teach them how to suffer, it's not to protect them from all suffering, it's to teach them how to suffer graciously. If you want them to be strong, if you want them to be survivors, if you want them to bring in the kingdom, it is for them to see and learn what happens, how do we suffer, how do we turn to Christ in our suffering? You know, it's like dealing with a virus, right? If you say, I'm going to protect my, my baby from, from all germs, and you zip up your baby in a bubble, what will you do? You'll kill the baby. If you don't allow the baby to experience some germs, build up some natural immunity, right, you're harming the baby. So you don't want to protect your child from all suffering. What you want to do is have them see in your lives and in their own lives how to suffer well. And that's what we can do. You know, whatever God asks of us, he does give us the power to do. We can be these two witnesses. We can be the faithful church. What helps us to face suffering graciously, we find out in the Lamb, in the midst of the throne. Let's come to his table now. Let's learn it. Please stand.